Any immediate questions from anything we covered this morning? I got some more things to say on a couple of topics, but any any anything come up that struck you? Jeremy, you want to give the man a microphone? I'm afraid I, I don't want to take us too far away from uh, this. Is you covered it this morning? Yeah. Um, John 11 uh, when when Caiaphas. Yes. I'm just confused by his part of the story. I mean, he. Okay. As the high priest, he made a prediction about Jesus being killed, and it would unify the Jews. It would save the Jews. Now, they mean geopolitically save them. The threat, the threat they're worried about, we read, is the Romans will come, take our position in our land. If, if the Rome does not deal with sedition very well, and so if Jesus, this King Jesus, gets too big of a deal, the Romans will hear about it and just squash. So when he says it's better for one to die for the people might live, he means purely in a geopolitical sense. And the irony being, and this again, getting back to the sovereignty of God, is Jesus is good. One is going to die for the spiritual salvation of people. And so the, this ironic, and again, we're meant to see the hand of God in control of this. I was trying to say, I think, two sermons ago, that Jesus is in control of the crucifixion. It's not something that happens to him as a oops, but rather at every step we see him intentionally moving towards it. And even here, these people plotting against him are speaking far better than they know. We, the reader, it's, it's the same thing going on with Pilate. Behold the king of the Jews. It's all mockery. We read it and we're like, yeah, but <laughs> he is the king of the Jews, right? Yeah, it's just interesting how John says that he's going to... or. John quoting Caiaphas says that he's going to die for the nation. What he really means is he's going to die to get him out of the way so the nation isn't destroyed by Rome. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just a, an, an odd way to think about it, I guess. No, the, 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 the crucifixion account and all the crucifixion accounts, but John's gospel in particular drips with irony unintended irony where people are saying things that they speak better than they know i mean d.a carson has a book the scandal of the cross where he deals with the ironies of the cross but you think of even the, the mockery right um he saved others he can't save himself the man who's mocked as powerless is powerful the man who saved others is saving others on the cross um th there's tremendous irony going on in the, in, the, in the narrative of the crucifixion, which the reader knowing the story can see. I mean, it's just profound. Um, in three different languages, the king of the Jews, you know, um, and the Jews, just, no, you should write, he said he was, and again, we'll get to Pilate, they've pressed his hand. They, they tell Pilate, look, because Pilate wants to let him go because his wife had the dream and Pilate doesn't find any fault with him. But the Jews call, press him by saying, look, if anyone who's loyal to Caesar doesn't do well with pretend kings. And uh, so Pilate buckles, but man, he's not happy about it. And so every chance he gets, he's st sticking it to him. And so like, no, you should write, he said. He's like, yeah, what I've written, I've written. Deal with it, you know. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's amazingly ironic. Like rain on your wedding day. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, two or three people who were alive in the 90s get that. Okay, great. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, irony is the opposite of wrinkly, right? So, sorry, another dad joke. Okay, I yeah yeah. Okay, is that any more to that or or? Okay, Timothy. Well, kind of more about. Hmm. 
Yeah, I just because you had you had mentioned at the beginning of your sermon to you know to read the Bible, uh, the, you know, the Gospel of John as a narrative, not as a string of pearls. Yeah, and those things you just talked about—that level of irony and that—I'm um, not found just there, but other places. I mean, that that is very literary, and I'm sure that there would be some that might say, "See, the Bible's—it's—it's it's a literary work of fiction," or or you know, has these flourishes added to it. But I would say. You know, it's kind of evident evidence that uh, God, the creator and the weaver of all of creation has, you know, what we recognize as good literary qualities in in fiction and in non-Christian literature. You know, it, it's because God gave us the ability to understand and 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 appreciate things like irony and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it's it's pretty deep stuff, actually. Well, and this gets back to even Christ as the Word of God. God is the author of language, not man. Yeah. One, one, of the, one of the things that we, we need to keep remembering is God gifted us with language. Who's the first person to speak human language? God, blessing the man and woman, be fruitful and multiply. The first user of human languages, whatever they spoke in the garden, um, which may have been some proto-Hebrew, only because some of the play on words wouldn't work in any language. She should be called Ish, for she was taken out of... She was called, be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. It doesn't have to be Hebrew, but um, it would have to be some language that play on words works. Um, so it could have been Hebrew, who knows. But God is the ultimate storyteller. God's the ultimate speaker. We speak because he speaks... Um, so yeah, it's it, starting from that vantage point of the talking God, the God who talks, the God who reveals, the God who tells story. Yes, we should expect. So he's quite at home in literature. That's the Christ is the Word made flesh. Yeah, absolutely. It's and that real life. I mean, the yeah literature. Yeah, I mean, that the real events that happened happen and unfold in a way that when written, make good literature, but are true. Yes. Not just, yes. not like a rhyming poem that may, or something. Or, yeah. The, you know. the irony being, there are some yeah, yeah. commentators who, once you get liberal enough, there are some guys who don't think any of this ever happened. They, in some senses, can deal more honestly with the text than the people who want to try to be, still be Christians, but are embarrassed by some of the stuff. So there, there's actually, when you get to a certain level of liberalism, you can actually become useful again because you're making at least no because they're reading it like they'd read Shakespeare but then they feel no reason to try to dodge the uncomfortable bits the bits about marriage and human sexuality and that because they don't think it ever happened they're not worried embarrassed about like once you like if you move further back and you're still going liberal but you're then you try to explain away the uh, feeding of the 5,000 it's really a lesson in Marxism all these stingy people had food under their cloaks but when they saw the generosity of the little boy they were convicted and then they brought their food out and so it's really the miracle about showing how people can combine their resources together and when we all care about our neighbor yay Marxism right well that's for people who think it happened if you don't think it happened you don't, you don't get embarrassed about miracles and fairy tales. There's a sense in which once you're liberal enough, you can still treat the Bible as a piece of literature. I mean, take, take some of, I mean, real English scholars will recognize like the English language is built, Western culture is built around the Bible. Jordan Peterson, who's no Christian, will recognize as the significant literary import and the Bible's most significant book ever written because it, it's 
that profound and well done. Um, it's it's it as a work of literature is unparalleled, and most honest literary s scholars will recognize that. Um, only people that axe to grind would would try to push back against that. So no, literarily, I mean Luther's German translation created the German or solidified the German language. Luther Luther solidified the German language with his with his translation because you had all these different dialects, but now they got a unifying text that everyone's got to read. Then everyone's got to sort of flex till they can read it. Well, I guess what you got a unified German language. Anyway, sorry. I'm, I'm no, yeah, yeah, you're right. And similarly, I think the same sometimes happens with science that scientists that have a beef with God aren't very useful, but ones that just go full bore into materialism sometimes they get to a point where it's like, oh yeah, this is. They don't always come to a saving conclusion of, of a right perspective of God, but they, they don't have the, the hang up of saying, oh, you know what, actually, yeah, scientifically, we should be okay eating children. That's, you know, scientifically wouldn't make a big deal, or, you know, because yeah. morals are jettisoned and all that kind of stuff. So they come to these conclusions that I think would be uh, without yeah. God or, yeah. you know, the make, anyway. Okay. If that makes sense. Don't, don't, don't eat your children. Don't eat children. Okay, any other questions? <laughs> I, you know, I think cannibals get a bad rap. They're just, they're just fed up. They're just fed up with people, you know? When you, when you throw them over the plate low like that, you can't help when I swing at them, you know? That was a sports thing, right? Okay, Simeon. Okay, so I have a question about uh, 116. You talked about a grace replacing a grace. Yes. Um, this might be something you'd punt for future sermons, but yeah, yeah. where does that sort of show up in the Old Testament so that we get that the Pharisees and the Jews missed that point? I think the grace replacing a grace would be that I'd look to those past. Okay, so let's look at 116. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. If, like I said, my ESV has the footnote. I don't want, I hate doing like, I can read Greek and you can't, so let me tell you what it really means. So whenever I can point you to like, your Bible gives you this as an option, you should read the footnotes. When your Bible has a footnote, frequently it's giving you alternate translations or alternate readings for significant variants. And so my ESV, and, and I hope yours does, if not, have a Bible on hand that has footnotes. Even if your favorite Bible to read day by day doesn't, I, it's useful. My 116, I got this little footnote. For me, it's footnote five, or grace in place of grace. And the Greek preposition is anti, like you get antipasta or antifreeze. And there's a built-in notion of opposition, or not opposition as in conflict, but apposition, uh, contrast. And um, it, it could mean, that I was actually talking to the translators of the, one of the translators of the LSV about why the LSV didn't translate it that way. There is at least... A minor, a less common usage of anti could mean grace upon, but the most straightforward, if you were looking up the dictionary, definition A, the most common usage, is in place of. And I think the following verse makes it clear that's what we've got. It's clearly, there's a contrast in verse 17, for the law, for connecting it, right? We've received grace in place of grace, for, here's some proof, the law was given through Moses, which is a grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
So I would look in the law to those promises of um, the new covenant, which is what I think exactly what Jesus is getting to in being born again. I think uh, in John 3, he's referencing Ezekiel's promise in the new covenant. I will sprinkle you with clean water and I'll give you my spirit. So being born of the spirit and of water, I think that's the reference there. And I'll put a new heart within you. I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So I think Jesus is referencing, which is why he says, are you the teacher of Israel? You're not following me. He's not saying something new. Nicodemus is worthy of a little rebuke because he's not tracking him precisely because this is in the Old Testament. I'd link that up with Deuteronomy 31. When you recall these things among all the nations that I scatter you and you seek me with all your heart, then I will circumcise your heart and give you a new heart so that you will love me. Which is, I mean, it's fascinating that in Deuteronomy, Moses predicts this is not, this, this law covenant, this Sinai covenant is not getting us home. You guys are too broken. You guys are too sinful. You're going to receive the covenant curses. You're going to be scattered. And then he doesn't fully develop it. But after that happens, when you seek me, then I'll circumcise your heart, which is what the law commanded earlier in chapter 6. As early as chapter 6, circumcise for yourself the foreskin of your heart. Be no longer stubborn. Which if you're reading it, how do I do that? Well, in chapter 31, it becomes clear God's going to do that for them. Um, Jeremiah 31. Um, is the, is the new covenant passage, right? I'll make a new covenant not with the house of Israel. And it's a superior covenant. So clearly, there's something better coming. There's a better covenant coming. Um, and so that would be the notion of, of, of the, that would be at least some of the Old Testament antecedent predictions of something greater coming that I think is trying to be highlighted in two to four, where like, this is a really impressive piece of uh, real estate. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it. You know, and which mountain should we worship? And Jesus tells her, like, the Jews got it right. I mean, he's not, no, I love that. He's like, the Jews got it right, but pretty soon it's not going to matter. You know, um, and, and so John is, and, and I haven't studied enough on this, but hopefully by the time we get there, but I suspect strongly that by having Jesus' activity in 5 through 12 have so much taking place around the feasts of Israel, that Jesus is the fulfillment of those feasts, what they're pointing to. Well, certainly, I didn't make this point. Do you, have a, do you guys have a footnote in verse 14? Anybody? For dwelt among us? Anybody? What? <laughs> well, not a cross-reference, a footnote. What do you got? 114. What do you got? For only one Chapter 114. The word became flesh, and I'm looking for what my ESV has dwelt among us. tabernacled. Ooh, if that's not a hint. I've seen one translation pitched his tent. He tabernacled with us. I wonder if that's going to set up for the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> now, if you remember the Feast of Tabernacles, the Israelites had to go and make a tent and live outside of their normal homes to remember that God cared for them in the wilderness when they wandered by, by tents. But one of the things that it also does is picture Christ forsaking the glory, the joy, the comfort he had in heaven and coming and tabernacling among us. So it's, we find out the Feast of Tabernacles is doing two things. Remember, remember I cared for you before you had this land. Because the whole danger of the land is you're going to think your power and your might brought you this land. And you're going to walk in and you're going to forget me. So I want you periodically to, to rough it. I want you to take a week and pitch a tent and live in your tent. Um, the brewers on Christmas morning, I love this. Um, Jeb, Jeb and Linda had a tradition. They'd go outside in the snow and do like some family devotions out there to try to remember, bear in mind, 
Christ's the contrast from your warm house to the outside is infinitely smaller than the contrast of Christ in heaven in fellowship with the Father and Christ having his umbilical cord being cut and circumcised on the eighth day and bleeding and being cold and needing to be ch- like we can go outside for 10 or 15 minutes on Christmas morning to remember that Christ left his glory he didn't hold on to it I think that's fantastic that's part of what the Feast of Tabernacles is picturing is you were strangers and sojourners and John's connecting it with Christ pitching his tent, tabernacling with us. It's fantastic. So that would be, so I suspect that the other feasts, well, we certainly know Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Passover lamb, right? So I'm interested to see what we do with the uh, Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah um, and how that fits in. Um, I, don't, I haven't looked into that yet. I got a good year or two before I need to start really figuring that one out. So... But by the time we get there, we shall. But that's where I'd start. I'd start with the new covenant promises in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Deuteronomy. Okay. Anybody else with anything? Jeremy, sweet. Right there. He's a microphone. Adam, can you get me a half cup of coffee, please? Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you want to talk a little bit about John's choice of the word word no. when describing Jesus? Well, not too much, because that's what we're doing next week. Yeah, I know. Well, um, I, I figured that I figured you were going to spend some time on it. Yeah. And I don't know, I'm not one that typically is great at reading deeply into sure. uh, things like this, but the choice of the word word, I mean, it's an alarming word <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. In the beginning was the word. Yes. And... You know, is it talking about, you know, God speaking? Is it talking about the yeah. word of it, the yeah. the Bible? You know, it, is Jesus the fulfillment of the script? There's just so many things that you can read into, and, I, and I'm afraid I don't, I don't want to do it, you know, yeah. when a plain text makes sense. But. No, no, that's a great question. Actually, I'll say some. We're going to be talking a lot more about this next week, next Sunday. But uh, let me tell you what I don't think it's talking about. A lot of people, especially, I'm... I'm getting ready to start teaching a, a homeschool class in philosophy, history of Western philosophy. And Western philosophy, at least in the, up until the Middle Ages, up until the Renaissance, was dominated by Plato and Aristotle. Dominated. The early Christian apologists, guys like Justin Martyr, um, who were trying to persuade people, were trying to synthesize. What they're trying to say is, hey, everything you think you know from philosophy fits just groovy with Christianity. Um, it wasn't really until you get to like Luther and Calvin that you get a strong break from Platonic theory and thought. Well, Plato... Now, if you know this, his whole deal is there's a, the binary. There's a, the world of thought and the world of forms and the, the noumenal, I mean, and the phenomenal world, right? And so the phenomenal world is bad and broken and the world of thought is logos. So there's a bunch of people who took logos and just ran to Plato with it. Um, I don't think that's the right answer at all. So they would, they would tie up its logic and its thought and its mind and its, well, you can... That's certainly how Plato uses it. Um, the fact that the New Testament references a couple philosophers but never mentions Plato or Aristotle, you need to take as a snub. It, it's, they're aware of them. Paul, like even when your own poet said, the Stoics and the Epicureans, oh no, they're well aware of Greek philosophy and not a word to Plato, not a word to Aristotle. That, that's not accidental. Um, rather, I'd say two things. I'd look to the Old Testament and I'd look to what John uses. And I really think verse 18, if you look at verse 18 of the prologue, helps us to understand how John's using word. 
Um, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, the Greek word there under made him known is exegeomai, from which we get the word expository preaching. It means to lead out, to draw out, to explain. You could say maybe he's translated him. He has revealed him. And so that's, I think, how John is taking word, that which reveals and makes known. In the beginning was the one who reveals God. God's self-expression is how Carson takes it, um, something like that. And he, this is the one now, the contrast. No one, we're going to see in the opening, there's about 12 points of connection with Deuteronomy, with Exodus 34. Remember, Moses goes up on the mountain and says, show me your glory. You can't behold my glory, but you can see my afterglow. No one's seen God at any time. Um, that's what that's linking to. So Moses, who saw God face to face, who met with him in the tent of meeting, could only see the, the hind glow glory. And then Jesus has beheld the glory, and then Jesus makes that glory known. Hebrews 1, Hebrews chapter 1. Keep your finger, go to Hebrews 1. This, I think that notion of communicate, explain, translate, is somewhat central to John's choice of title of word. Um, God's agent of communication, God's medium of communication. Hebrews, this is really cool. Um... I'm going to give you a woodenly literal translation of Hebrews 1. Well, all it is is that the ESV and every other translation adds a word that's not there because otherwise it's bad English. So, um, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Quick survey. How many different ways has God spoken to the fathers and the prophets? How? Just pop them off. What? Words. Words. That's one. What else? Burning, Burning bush? Through yeah. Angels. Through angels. Through signs, visions, prophets. At one time, a disembodied hand wrote on the wall, right? God's own finger wrote the Ten Commandments, right? Through a donkey, right? No, no, he says in many times, there's a bunch of ways God's chosen to reveal himself to people. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, and then the ESV says, by his son. Guess what word they supplied? His. The Greek is enhuio. It's almost as if the language God spoke is the language of son. He has spoken to us in son. There's no his there. It's just not good English. It'd be awkward English. But that's the concept. So again, I, I think the, the, the biblical weight of what, because you, you're absolutely right. If you go back to John 1, the first two titles we get for Jesus are new. Word, and then the Lamb of God from John the Baptist's mouth. And very quickly, we start getting the normal titles. Not the normal, the, the familiar titles. So very quickly, he's rabbi in chapter 1, verse 38, which means teacher. Then in 41, he's the Christ. In 45, he's the one about whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. And in 49, he's the king of Israel. So John is going to get to familiar titles for Jesus. But the first two he gives us, I think is meant to make you slow down. I mean, but, but the simplest answer I give is this. John's giving us a new, an odd title. I let John show what he wants to do with it. But I think the first signpost of what he wants to do with it is in 118. When you're using a language category in um, made him known, it's, it's exposited, revealed, translated, 
explained, something like that. And so that's what words do. So that'd be my first signpost of John. What are you trying to emphasize by calling Jesus the word is that. And I think he's intentionally slowing us down. He'll get to the familiar titles, but first, here's the word. That's all I want to say for now. I'll have more to say next week, but thank you. Any other questions on that or, or anything else? There's one other introductory matter I didn't deal with in the introduction that I could have, but I didn't think you guys wanted four weeks of intro. And that is what to do with the woman caught in adultery in John 7. Let's turn, turn there real fast. I'm guessing most of your Bibles have something at the end of 752. ESV's got the earliest manuscripts, do not conclude 753 to 811, okay? This is, there's about three or four disputed passages in the New Testament. This is easily the biggest one. There's a verse in 1 John, the Trinity verse. There's the long ending of Mark, that's probably the second biggest one. And there's this. And after that, it's like a word here or there. This is easily the biggest disputed text. And I know that that, when you first encounter, can be troubling. Um, how can we have an authoritative word from God? How can we have a, a word that heaven and earth will pass away, but not this word will pass away? And then here's like the majority of a chapter that my Bible says might not be scripture. You know? Um, and that can sort of throw people for a loop. I tend to think those who uh, go King James only do so that there might be an absolute rock-solid, unquestionable, unchanging word. Certainty. What? Certainty. Certainty. Yeah, I tend to think that. I tend, I tend to think, in fact, as I've talked to some King, King James only is different from King James best. If you're King James best, we can disagree. That's fine, whatever. I mean, if you speak Elizabethan English, it's wonderful. Um, no, no, I, it is. My only, my only contention of why I wouldn't want to hand it out to new believers is it's not the words you don't understand, because at least when you read a word you don't understand, you know you don't understand it. It's the words whose meaning has changed so much you actually will misunderstand. Like charity. The King James translates love as charity. And if you think charity is a handout, charity is demeaning, you're going to misunderstand. Um, or when, remember we talked about how John runs and gets ahead of Peter. Literally, in the King James, he prevented him. Because what prevent, to ventilate, to go ahead of, just means to go ahead. In time, prevent meant a certain specific type of going ahead so as to thwart, hinder, or nullify, right? So prevent, when the King James translates, a perfectly good translation. Nowadays, you'd think, man, what a jerk. <laughs> Why are you trying to trip up Peter? That, that's real competitive, right? Um, or in James, divers temptations. You're like, what are these mermaids? What are we talking about here? Um, okay, sorry, I'm sneaking those dad jokes in, man. I'm sorry. But anyway, back to the King James only stuff. So King James best. If you got the vocabulary and you can deal with Elizabethan English, more power to you. It's one of the most elegant, beautiful translations going. Um, but if you're King James only, meaning. God wants us all reading the King James, and any of the translation is a New Age evil translation. That tends to get weird fast, and I think that's far more indefensible. So I want to distinguish between King James best. I know some people, even our church, who they just like the King James. 
Like, that's cool. Or King James only. And faithful Christians read the King James because the words of a king are like pure silver. And, you know, it's some weird arguments. Um, yeah. Well, the weirdest thing in the King James only movement, I was doing street evangelism in New York City, and I saw a flyer for a Spanish-speaking church that said 1611, which is, of course, the year the King James was translated. And I'm like, what on earth is a Spanish-speaking church? They, tr they translated their Spanish translation, not from Greek and Hebrew, but from the King James. Oh, well, yeah. I was just like, you're wow. Wow. Okay. So... When, if you don't hold on to one magic translation, then you're going to deal with the uncertainty of translation. Um, you're going to deal with these issues. And so I want to suggest to you that my take on John 7, you can do some research and reading into this. What it turns out is our oldest manuscripts don't have it. Um, and with the manuscripts that do have it, have it all over the place. The, the woman caught in adultery, we've got copies of Luke with it thrown in there. We've got copies of John with it in other places. And so as you're trying to figure out the text, um, and you're using the tools of text criticism and trying to figure out what the text is, the overarching principle is this. If you can explain how you got to where you're at, that's the way to go. For instance, um, we may have the most common deviations in the text in the New Testament tend to be around titles for Jesus. Um, so you may have one text family where in a given verse it's Christ Jesus, and then another text family from, say, like Alexandria that says, Lord Jesus. And then you got another option that says, Lord Christ Jesus. Seems to me the most likely explanation is that that third one was result of a scribe having both of them not want to make a choice and putting them together. It was called a conflate reading. That seems to make the best sense of the evidence. So then you'd rule out choice C and then try to figure out whether Lord or Christ is what then you'd go with your earlier text, the, the rules of text criticism, which is simply trying to figure out what the text is, uh, include the following. The shorter reading is probably better. Scribes tend to add, not take away. Um, the harder reading is probably better because scribes tend to smooth difficulties out as opposed to creating new ones. The one with less theological bias is to be preferred. Scribes will sometimes try to add theology in. Um, the most, like I said, the most common variations are this. You got scribes who've memorized Luke and they're telling a parallel account in Matthew and words from Luke will snip into Matthew because in Luke, in Matthew, it's Lord Jesus. And over here, that, that's where the most common stuff happens is in the synoptics where clearly, and again, you're trying to explain how did this weird show up? So let me, let me, um, give you this analogy to try to give you some confidence in the new testament because i know i went through this phase where i first learned this, like, whoa what and having sort of studied it more i'm actually more confident on the accuracy of the new testament now than than i was beforehand imagine um imagine i'm speaking in front of a thousand people and they're all tasked with a job of writing down word for word what i say Imagine I don't speak at my micro machine speed, um, but I speak slow and steady and legible and audible. Um, legible, that was a mistake. Um, now imagine those thousand people gather their manuscripts. I think it would be entirely plausible to grant that it may be that not one single person has a perfect copy. 
And yet, if we had all 1,000 copies, we could almost certainly recreate with perfect accuracy what I said, because the people wouldn't make the same mistakes in the same place. And so if 995 copies said one thing, and the remaining five said different things, you can be far more likely that 995 people heard me right and five people I, I spoke too quickly got it wrong than the opposite. Well, the same thing holds to our Greek New Testaments. So when the King James was translated, it was based off of a Greek text commissioned by the Catholic Church by the uh, humanist scholar Erasmus of Rotterdam. And Erasmus had about 20 Greek families of texts, maybe 100 or 200 texts ultimately, to work from. And most of them are from the Middle Ages. And he did a remarkably good job with what he had. One of the benefits of Islam, and there are not many, but one of the benefits of Islam is as the Turks and the Muslims took over the Holy Lands, they drove out Coptic, they drove out Eastern Orthodox Christians with their really ancient Greek Old Testaments. So we've got like Sinaiticus um, is from a is from a uh, Catholic Orthodox Church on Mount Sinai, Vaticanus, Alexandria. There's some really old ones. So we're all of a sudden jumping from texts in the Middle Ages to texts that are like in the third or fourth century, which is huge. And we now have way more texts to work with. And so what happens is Erasmus is what's called the Textus Receptus which is the name given to it because the, um, the Pope approved it. So it's the received text, the, the text the Pope said, thumbs up. That is what the King James, the New King James, the some of the older translations, I think maybe even the RSV is translated from, I could be wrong. And then there's another group which comes out of more the, the 20th century, 19th century discoveries working called the critical text. So you've got Erasmus's text, and, and in your Bibles, what it'll usually say is like MSS or LXX or things like that. So you've got the, 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 the received text, the Vulgate. No, the Vulgate's Latin, sorry. You've got the uh, Textus Receptus, and you've got the critical text. Um, and what you've got is in Erasmus's Greek text, you've got the woman caught in adultery. And what you've got is the critical text, it's not there. Or if it is there, it's in all sorts of different places. And again, what it looks like is, um, and I'll deal with this more fully when we get to John 7, is it looks like simultaneously it shows up early. It doesn't, some things like just appear in the Middle Ages and you're like, okay, that's, that's you know, clearly bogus. Um, the, the woman caught in the adultery narrative shows up rather early in our texts that we've got. However, it sh doesn't have a home. There's no common placement for it. It looks as though simultaneously the scholars respect it, want to hold on to it, and they're trying to find a home for it. So the short version of my take on John 7 is that I don't think it was part of the Gospel of John. I think if you read around it, the text fits together way better. However, it may well be written by John, and it may well be scripture. I'm pretty confident it wasn't part of this document, the Gospel of John. Um, it, it probably almost certainly happened. The best way to explain why the scribes are holding on to this is because there are all, still oral reports that this thing happened. So I think it probably happened, and it may well be Scripture. Jesus' sheep have heard his voice in this passage for a long time. Um, and some of the patristic fathers are citing it, but they're also aware of its debate. 
I think far less likely it was part of John's gospel. So when we get to it in John, I will preach the passage, probably in one message, and I will try not to make any points hang on that passage alone. I wouldn't want to argue against the death penalty from the woman caught in adultery. Um, I wouldn't want the peg stuff to bear a ton of weight. I wouldn't want some unique doctrine that depends on this passage. I think there's plenty from it we can learn. Anyway, that's a lot I just said. Questions about that? Objections to that? We'll deal with this more when we get there. But that is the other big introductory issue to deal with. Like, if we were to deal with problems in John, the woman caught in adultery text is the big one, no question. Thoughts? Questions? Yes, Don. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how relevant this is, but um, I've, talking about inspiration of Scripture and how yeah. uh, in the Gospels uh, there's not always complete agreement um, between, and uh, I take that from one of the uh, one things that investigators investigating a case will say if all the all the people that they call in the likely suspects and their stories exactly match they figure there's collusion right if they if they're roughly the same but there's differences it's probably the truth yeah well that now you're talking about harmonizing the gospel so how many people are on the road to jericho are there two or there one and yeah there, there's some harmonization issues that don't frac- frankly make any sort of contradiction if i say jesus met a man on the road to jericho I haven't ruled out that man was part of a group. I'm just caring to tell you about this one guy. So if another gospel writer says, on the road to Jericho, Jesus encountered three men, there's no fundamental contradiction. It is less harmonized than I might prefer. But your point, I think, is well taken. If they harmonize too well, we just say it was a conspiracy. I mean, people can be hard to please. Yeah. Any other questions about the woman caught in adultery, John? I've shaken you up. I apologize. But... Um, one of the one of the uh, one of the examples I'll give when I do Turger with the students at Appenus. I got the ESV. Who's got a different translation here today? What do you got? Uh, what? Uh, Worldings Bible. What else we got? Okay, so I got three three trans I got three translations right here. Um, let me ask you a question. This is my Bible, it's ESV Bible. Is this the Word of God? Okay, hold up your ESV. Is that the Word of God? Are these identical? No. Are there two words of God? No. Then how do we make, what do we, sense do we make of we got two things we have said by the word of God, but there aren't two words of God? How do we, how do we square that? I mean, this is, this is, I think, part of the tension that you were King saying. King James only. Yeah, the King James only. That's how you resolve it. No, 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 no. But I want you to get the appeal because it's difficult. It's, it's challenging, right? Um, it, it's kind of unnerving. And so you have to end up with is two things. Um, God has preserved his word, and we have as, an accu- as accurate of a Bible as God wants us to have. And what I, what I teach the students in Turger is my English Bible is the word of God to the degree that it accurately translates what was originally written. If you could show me um, where it's a bad translation, I would cross it out. I have the word his crossed out in my Bible next to his son in, in Hebrews 1-2. Um, I, I know why I'm doing that, and I know what I'm reminding myself of. Um, I have the footnote about, or grace and plate of grace, highlighted, because I want to remember that one. In, in, I can get little tiny highlighters. But our, the ESV is the word of God to the degree that it accurately translates the text. 
let me ask you a more fundamental question. What is the warrant? What is the What makes us believe it's okay to translate the Greek and Hebrew? Islam, strict Islam, you're not supposed to do that. Strict Islam says, look, you want to know Allah? You can jolly well learn Arabic. And, and God could say that. If God doesn't have to speak in our own tongue and language, God could say, knowing me is a pretty big deal, and if you think it's important enough, you'll learn Hebrew and you'll learn Greek, and even a little Aramaic. What makes us think it's permissible to translate the Greek and the Hebrew, as opposed to, and you can say, well, the Great Commission. The Great Commission could be go out into the world and teach them English, teach them Greek and Hebrew. And then you can teach them the gospel, and then you can call them to observe all that God's taught. We could do that. It would take a little longer, it'd be more work, but we could totally do that. In other words, nothing but the Great Commission demands we speak in their language. It's just going to be a lot more work to teach them Arabic, Hebrew, and Greek. I saw a hand, though. What's your theory? A microphone for the theory. Yeah. My theory is the Tower of Babel, where God created many languages, yep. and then that God was going to go throughout the earth to all peoples. Okay. I got a better, I got a better, that, there's something to that. I think I got a better reason, though. Okay. I think I got a, I got a more, up for, Adam knows the answer. No, 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 do it, do it, Adam. Well, wait, before you do it, anyone else want to take a swing at the ball? Because Adam's going to get it. I know he's going to, he's going to connect. It's going to be a center line drive, and he's going to score a goal. Um, uh, okay, yeah, sorry. Okay, yes, Adam. The usage of references to the Old Testament being quoted in the New Testament in Greek. Boom. Jesus and the apostles quote both the Hebrew and the Greek translation of the Hebrew with no discernible distinction of one being more authoritative than the other. Do, do you guys know the rough percentages? Which one do you think they use more? Greek? The Greek translation was called the Septuagint or the Hebrew text. What do you think they quote more often? Septuagint's about 60-40. About 60-40. And so Jesus and Paul and the apostles can say, it is written, and then they quote a translation. So that tells us that when a translation is done rightly, that didn't just prove all the Septuagint's always right all the time. What it does mean is when God's word is translated accurately, it doesn't lose any of its authority, any of its accuracy, any of its power. There's our warrant for translation. Jesus did it. The apostles did it, so we can do it too. That's the basis of it, okay? I think it's a good exercise to ask that question because, look, Islam's like, dude, you want to know Allah, you better learn some Arabic. And if that's what Allah said, if that's what God said, then we better all be learning Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, right? But... We have the model from Jesus and the apostles of using a translation. So that's the basis that when it's true, we also can see the apostles correcting translations like they do in Ephesians. Um, that's a whole other thing. But anyway, we have four minutes. Any other questions on this? I just know I opened a huge can of worms. We will deal with this probably in about a year when we get to John 7. Um, my guess. Um, Simeon, bring us home, buddy. Bring us home. So just an interesting thought. When Luther translated to German the Bible, that was basically bringing us back to the people having the Bible again. Yeah. And before that, it was like... Latin. Yeah. And before that, it was the Greek. Greek. Hebrew, yeah. So Jerome in the fourth century makes the Vulgate in Latin, which at the time, a lot of people spoke. 
It was vulgate, like vulgar, the common person. But very quickly, it didn't represent the common person at all. It represented the priestly aristocracy. And so Rome's whole position was, well, we better not translate it for them because they might get confused. They need priests to tell them what it means. And they wanted to hold on to their interpretive role and function. Um, so to protect that, they, they rejected it being translated into the vernacular. So when, I mean, that was the really, that was the real thing Luther did. He, he, he debated them, not in Latin, but in German. So all of a sudden peasants can read Luther's, in, man, the dude, Luther could insult you. There's a, there's a website, the, the Luther insulter you can go to and he'll just come out with some, he, the dude has got a sharp and fiery pen. And the peasants are reading this. And when he's objecting things, they're reading it. And once he translated the New Testament and the Bible, then the Old Testament as well, the, the peasants can be like, yeah, there is nothing in here about purgatory, is there? I mean, I mean, seriously, right? I mean, you got guys like Tetzel just banging on about purgatory. Find purgatory in the Bible. Now, you can try to find it in like some of the extra biblical texts like Tophet and, and some of those. But Rome didn't even view those as scripture until the Counter-Reformation of Trent. I mean, Rome retroactively made the Apocrypha scripture to defend doctrines they knew they couldn't. When all of a sudden, everyday people can read the Bible. And Luther's like, so where's penance and where's indulgences and where's purgatory? Rome is all of a sudden, so the, the apocrypha is scripture now. Well, he pulled the pants down. Yeah, well, I suppose that's a questionable metaphor, but yes, <laughs> yes. But Fair. all of a sudden. I mean, someone else brought up children. How about this? People got to see behind the curtain. Or the emperor had no clothes or something like that. There you go. There's, there's a clothing metaphor that I'll stick with. Okay. And no, so it's not, I mean, this is the, one of the things when people talk with the canon, Rome didn't view, didn't declare the Apocrypha scripture until the 6th, the 17th, till, till the, the Council of Trent in the 17th century. And it's because they had to because they couldn't defend purgatory from the 66 books of the Bible. And so like, that's kind of reactionary. So like when you're like, well, the Catholic Bible's got more books than ours. Well, yeah, for the last 500 years it has. Before that it didn't, you know. Um, anyway, time's up. Thank you very much. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.